just as we are. You take us, Lord. We don't need to clean ourselves up, Lord. You've already saved us. And we are so grateful for all you've done, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your love, that you would build your kingdom here with us and cleanse us and make us your own, Lord, so that you can show the world your glory. We pray that you'll start with our church and just expand from here, Lord. Thank you so much for who you are. Amen. You all may be seated. Awesome job. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Acts chapter 2. As we continue in our series called Rise, we are going to be uh, looking at the second chapter of Acts today and uh, kind of titled this message Power Source because as we get into the second chapter of Acts, we're going to see uh, the Spirit of God come to His people uh, as we study this passage today. And so if you would, Acts chapter 2, we're going to read the first 15 verses together and then later in the morning we're going to go into the, the second half of the chapter. But if you will, just uh, read with me Acts chapter one or Acts chapter 2, starting verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit had enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears, uh, each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And this was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, When we think about this kind of beginning occurrence of the Holy Spirit coming to the uh, to the world, uh, there's some things that we kind of need to backtrack on just a little bit. Last week we talked about the fact and the idea that there is a difference between the church and the kingdom. That when Jesus came, he came to proclaim the kingdom of God is near. And we said last week that there's these uh, subtle differences and some that are not so subtle differences about the church of God that we belong to as believers in Christ and that there is a universal church that regardless of if you live here or on the other side of the world, if you are a believer in Christ, you are part of his church. Then there's also a local church, which is what we are. We're a gathering of people in a local church body to minister in this setting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
there's this idea of the church that's represented in the world. But there's also the kingdom of God that is coming, that Jesus proclaimed was going to be a future reality while it also exists in the current reality. Not in its completeness, but in a representation. And as the kingdom of God is birthed in the hearts of individual people, then we represent God's kingdom in this earth. And we talked about this idea that where the rule and the reign of Jesus takes place, his kingdom has already come. So in your heart and in mine, if we're believers in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. But there will be a literal kingdom that comes that Jesus will establish on the earth. The Bible talks about the fact that he will destroy all things and he will recreate in its completed perfection. And he will bring his kingdom and his rule and his reign to earth. And so that was kind of where we were last week. And we needed to make that clarification so that as we go through this study on the book of Acts, we don't get confused about the ideas behind are we the church or are we the kingdom? Well, we're kind of both, but primarily as we talk about the church growing, which we'll hit today, we need to understand that there is a difference between those two realities. And so this morning as we look at, at this passage, Acts chapter 2, uh, we see that that starts off says that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Jesus had told his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. Remember, he spent 40 days with his disciples following his resurrection. And the Bible said that during that period of time, he talked to them about the kingdom of God and he gave convincing proofs of his life, that he had been risen from the dead. And so 40 days that he had spent with his disciples, and now we're at a day called Pentecost. Pentecost is a celebration that takes place 50 days after uh, Passover. So Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was dead for three days. He appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And now we are 50 days past the Passover event. Penta means 50. And so with this idea of 50 days, there's a new celebration that's taking place. On the 10th day... Uh, that where we are now, after Jesus has ascended, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is sent from God to his people. And so they're all together in this room, they're praying, and which I think is really significant that Acts 1 talks about the fact that they would gather together and they would pray together, that they were still a little bit trepidatious, I think, in their understanding of what was going to happen. I mean, Jesus has already been crucified, he's come back to life, but they, he's now left them. There's been a period of 10 days now where Jesus is not on the scene, and I kind of wonder if the disciples felt like, man, the Romans could still come and get us. We're still associated with Jesus, and we don't know if we're safe or not. And so while they are all together, they're praying, and they're in this room, this place that they're all gathered together, I wonder if they're in fear during that period of time. And yet on this day, on the day of Pentecost, it says they were all together, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Um, I love the timing of this, that what God does as he introduces the Holy Spirit is that he does it at Pentecost. And the reason I love the timing of this is because thousands of years before this event took place, God established celebrations and feasts for his people. And so you have all of these wonderful celebrations that the Jewish people observe. And Passover was the most recent one prior to Pentecost. But what you see for these feasts is that they always are for different purposes. Some celebrate remembrance. Uh, some are for celebration. Some were for community and fellowship, that we do these things to invite community to take place within our culture. Some were for forgiveness and healing. But there's all these celebrations that the Jewish people would participate in and all these feasts that God had ordained for different times and for different purposes. And so now we're at the Feast of, uh, of Pentecost. And I love that this takes place on Pentecost because when Jesus died on the cross, it was Passover. 
Fifty days later, Pentecost takes place. Now, Pentecost, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write a couple of things down, 50 days following the Passover, the Jews celebrate Pentecost, otherwise known as, does anybody from your studies know what they called Pentecost? There was about three different things they called it. Anybody want to take a stab? What? I can't hear you. That's fine. All right, let me give them to you. One is called the Feast of Weeks. If you see the Feast of Weeks, that's the same as Pentecost. The other is the Feast of Harvest. So if you see these things associated as you read Scripture, they're the same thing. Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. The reason it was called the Feast of Harvest specifically is because it took place in the springtime. This would have been one of three times that Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem and make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to show themselves before God at the temple. And so you have these moments in time, Passover was one, that they would have to come and present themselves. They would have to make a sacrifice or they would have to celebrate this, uh, this meal, this Pentecost meal. And the reason it was in the springtime, this would have been one of the busiest ones for people to travel to Jerusalem because it was beautiful. It was beautiful weather, beautiful time of year. And they had just celebrated the Feast of Harvest. The reason they call that is because they've just harvested their crops. And they're coming to offer a gift to God for the bounty that he's blessed them with. And so the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest takes place. Pentecost is this celebration. And so I love that this takes place because here's, here's what's so significant. While God has ordained these celebrations thousands of years before, everything lines up in his timeline to show God's power and that they all point to Jesus. At Passover, they have a celebration where they would kill a lamb and they would remember that the shedding of blood on their behalf gave them freedom out of slavery in Egypt. They remember back to the days of Moses where they were slaves in Egypt and Moses had them to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and that as the last plague was introduced to Egypt, that if you had the blood of a lamb on your doorpost that you were safe, that your child would be safe. But all of the Egyptians who did not do that, that their firstborn children were killed by the angel. And then after that, Pharaoh allowed the children of Israel to leave and to go from captivity to freedom. And so they had celebrated this for thousands of years. And what takes place on the day of Passover? Jesus comes as God's sacrificial lamb. The final offering, the final sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. So that we could have our greatest need met. That we were slaves to something greater than Egypt. We were slaves to sin. And God desired to set us free from our sin. So he sent Jesus to be our Passover lamb. That the blood of Jesus on the cross, that became the doorpost of us. And that His blood was given on our behalf. So we see this Passover celebration that it all points to Jesus. And yet we see now at Pentecost, here's the next thing that I love. And again, the celebration of this and how God ordained this from thousands of years earlier. He sends His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Why is that significant or important? Because here's what Jesus had told His disciples. He said to His disciples before He left, Listen, the fields are white unto the harvest, but I just need workers to go out into the fields. And so now at the feast of the harvest, the Holy Spirit comes. And the souls of men for the first time are about to be harvested into God's kingdom. And what Jesus was talking about was that we would be able to go into the fields, the earth. We would be able to go into the lives of other people and say, your life is ripe for God to change you and to bring you into his kingdom. Just like someone would go into a field and use a sickle to cut the wheat and bring it into their home and collect it for themselves. God is designed to collect people unto himself. And when the Spirit of God came at Passover, that's what took place. 
We're going to read in just a few minutes that on this day, on this Passover, or on this uh, Feast of Pentecost, on the Feast of Harvest, that 3,000 people came into God's kingdom on that day. That there was a harvest of souls like no one had ever seen before. All in God's perfect timing because God always does things with purpose and on purpose. Always. And so you see how God has ordained all of these things from the very beginning of time. And now here's the interesting thing. When the Spirit of God comes, some crazy things begin to happen. And you see that as they're gathered there in verse 3, they saw, uh, or suddenly, excuse me, in verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, that's some crazy stuff, right? That you go, when the Spirit of God falls, there's a wind that sweeps through Jerusalem. And it ends up in the home where these men are and where these disciples, these followers of Jesus are. But it's not isolated to them. We're going to see in just a minute that everyone in Jerusalem heard this wind. That it got their attention. That there was something different. This wasn't just kind of like, oh, the wind picked up and blew through and everybody was like, oh, look, the wind. It was like this crazy tornado type activity flew through. And they knew something was different. It got their attention. And when the Spirit of God comes into the room where the disciples are, that Jesus had told them to go and to pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come, that as they waited and when the Spirit of God came, the Bible says that that what appeared to be like tongues of fire rested on each of them. Can you just imagine? I mean, just take a minute and imagine. Being in a room like this right now where we are, the Bible says that there were about 120 people gathered. There were 11 disciples, but about 120 devoted followers of Jesus. About 120 people. That's about what I see in front of us right now. If a giant wind blew in here and all of a sudden there were flames of fire resting above all of us, we would freak out, right? Come on, what would you do? Fire extinguishers, anybody? You would stop, drop, and roll? What's going to take place in that moment? They start seeing tongues of fire resting on one another. You had to know that was an intense moment. They're just going, what in the world is going on, right? And yet, if you remember what John the Baptist said before he baptized Jesus, he said, I baptize with water, but there's one who's coming after me that will baptize you with fire. And when the Spirit of God comes, the fire of God rests on his disciples. The Old Testament had prophesied and talked about the fact that the Spirit was like wind or breath. The word pneuma is used in the Greek in the New Testament. That God's spirit is like the wind. And so how better does he come in? Jesus had told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that following Jesus and knowing what it's like to be in the kingdom of God is like the wind. It comes from nowhere and it blows wherever it wants to go and you can't control it. You can't do anything about it. But when it comes, it changes things. And so on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of God flows in like wind. What's fascinating, too, is that after Jesus had come back to life, at the end of John, if you go and read in the Gospels of John, John says that when Jesus appeared before his disciples, what did he do? He showed up in a room and he breathed on them. Wow, why? It's kind of one of those moments where you're going, Jesus, you just came back from the dead and you are very eccentric. What are you doing? And here's a tic-tac. Like, why are you breathing on me? It's like Jesus needed tic-tacs, right? That is irreverent. Okay. And so you go, here's the deal. Jesus breathes on them. Why? He says he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Because the breath of God was coming. 
It would be the breath that would bring us to life. Just like we need to breathe to keep our chests pumping, to keep oxygen in our hearts and our lungs, to keep us alive. The breath of God, the Spirit of God, the pneuma of God, His wind, when it comes, it brings us spiritually to life. And your spirit that until this time has been dead, when the Spirit of God comes into your life, it brings you life like you've never experienced before. And so Jesus comes in and he breathes on them. But in this moment we see, and Joel had prophesied and Isaiah had prophesied, that the Spirit of God would be like a wind that would come. So he comes with wind and he comes with fire. But then the disciples start doing something else that's a little crazy. They start speaking different languages. And this is how we know this kind of takes place. It doesn't just say that, but the Bible says that there are people from all over the known world who have come to Jerusalem. Remember, this is Pentecost. This is one of those times where people had to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So they're all there. And they get this wind coming through and they notice that something's going on. It moves them to this place where the disciples are. And as the disciples start to speak the truth about God and taking what's taking place here, as they start communicating, they're all speaking in different languages. They're uneducated. They don't know. They're not preparing to do this. Like this wasn't one of those things that they go, hey, okay, we've been studying. I have been brushing up on my Aramaic. I've been brushing up on my Greek. I've been brushing up on my Hebrew. I am about to go out and make this proclamation in these foreign languages. That wasn't what took place. The Bible says that this was a spirit-led event, that something different was happening here. And that all the people started saying, how is it that we can understand them in our languages? Aren't they all from Galilee? These are Galileans. And yet when I hear them, they're speaking in my tongue, my native voice. The Spirit of God empowers them to spread the gospel to this diverse crowd. And He shows power in that. And so the, the question gets asked in verse 12. The crowd is there and they say, what does this mean? Good question, right? Wouldn't you ask that? If a giant wind blew through Kingsport and it kind of isolated itself up into this one place, this one house, and then fire comes on people... And then they come out of the house and we've all gathered around and they start speaking in different languages and we're just going, what? What is the word? What does this mean, right? You would ask that question. And really what's taking place is that Jesus has told his disciples, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Peter comes out and he begins to preach to the people. And he begins to explain to them all of these things. Now, we tend to talk, and I've, I've done this myself, and it's not wrong, but I think it's not 100% the right way to address it. But when we tend to talk about this passage of Scripture and we say, Jesus told us to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, we kind of talk about it in concentric circles. Like, Jerusalem is here in Kingsport, and Judea is like Tennessee, and Samaria is the United States, and the end of the world, right? We've got to go to the end of the world. And so we talk about it in this concentric idea of it getting bigger. But I think there's something more that we need to consider with this. And I love how a man named Paul Pearson stated it. It's on your notes in your outline because this isn't the same idea that's being expressed. Listen to what Paul Pearson said. These words, being Jesus' statement in Acts 1-8, go into all the world in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. These words symbolize the breaking of an almost infinite number of barriers in order that men and women everywhere might hear and respond to the good news. Just as God in Christ had broken through the barriers which separated eternity from time, divinity from humanity, holiness from sin, so His people were to break through geographical, racial, linguistic, religious, cultural, and social barriers in order that people of every race and tongue might receive the good news. So when we look at the crowd gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost, what do we see? 
We see people from every race, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We see them gathered there. And as the disciples begin to preach, they're breaking through linguistic barriers, racial barriers, cultural barriers. They're doing all of these things. And what Pearson says is that just as God had broken through all of the barriers to come to us, now he's sending us to break through all the barriers to go to the nations, to go to the world. And so the next blank on your outline is this. God's church is characterized by diversity from its birth. God's church is characterized by diversity from its birth. That when Jesus implemented the church and when the Holy Spirit came, he broke all of these barriers down. He had it at the right time when there would be people from all over the earth coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. And he did all of this to share with us that everyone matters to God. This wasn't just something for Jerusalem Jews. This wasn't just something for people in the inner circle of the disciples. This message of good news that God has was for everyone. Because everyone matters to God. And I love that we can look around our church and see diversity. It's cool. Uh, when you think about where we live, listen, let's just be honest for a minute, okay? Kingsport, Tennessee. Have you looked up some de- dem- demographics about where we live? Kingsport, Tennessee is 91.4% white. It's just the truth. Not a whole lot of diversity going on right here in Kingsport, right? And yet when you look around our church, on any given Sunday, let me tell you what you can see. Here at Grace Fellowship Kingsport, we have black, we have white, we have Indian, we have Asian, we have people from Dominican Republic, we have Puerto Ricans, we have Filipinos. Did I leave anybody out? Any closet Canadians? No? Joey told me earlier this morning that he's from Louisiana. That counts as a whole different culture in and of itself. But here's what's so cool about this, is that you start thinking about the fact that the church of God is supposed to be diverse in nature because we break down all these barriers to take the gospel to everyone. And it's not just these kind of barriers. Look, we have rich and poor. We have educated and uneducated. We have people here from all kinds of backgrounds. We have people from different religious backgrounds that attend our church. And the thing that's common for all of us is that regardless of what you grew up in, in your cultural background and your religious background, that you have found faith in Jesus Christ. And that becomes our common thread. That there is diversity among the church because Jesus breaks every barrier to take the gospel to the nations. And the nations are right here. And the diversity takes place right here. That's what's so powerful about the church of God. It is amazing when we start looking at this because everyone matters to God. And this is where the church reflects the kingdom. I mean, this is where really when we say that the kingdom and the church are not the same thing, but the church is like a foretaste of the kingdom to come. We reflect the reality of what the kingdom will be. In Revelation chapter 7, John was given a vision of heaven. And at the end, when God puts all things under the rule and the reign of Christ, the Bible says that John looked out among heaven and he said, I saw people from every nation and language and tribe and tongue. And they all gathered at the throne of God and they worshipped Him. The church is to be a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And it's powerful that we see diversity in the church. And I love that God breaks down cultural barriers and religious barriers and and racial barriers in order to bring people into His kingdom so that we celebrate the same God, the same Savior. That's an amazing, amazing thought. So as the crowd gathered 
around them. Many of them wondered what the experience meant. And Peter gets to proclaim the truth about what was going on, that God was bringing a harvest in. But there were some others in verse 15, some of them mocked, right? And so when you read verse 15, look at, what, at what's recorded. Uh, excuse me, verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. A little drunk. Guys are kind of tipsy. And then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Which is a pretty good excuse, right? He's going, look, we're not on a college campus here. It is only 9 a.m. Nobody's drunk right now. This is something different. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus had, had said to his followers, listen, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And that's what Peter's proclaiming right now. Because we're, we're not drunk, we're not crazy, nothing, nothing insane is going on in that regard. But here's what's true, and if you, again, if you're taking notes, write this down. When we act in the power of the Holy Spirit, we may seem crazy to the rest of the world. I mean, when you act in the power of the Holy Spirit, you may seem crazy. There are things that you will do as a follower of Jesus in the power of His Spirit that other people will look at and go, that's insane, why would you do that? Why would you act like that? Why would you behave like that? And here's what's true. The Holy Spirit in our life is powerful. And in case you're one of those people that that kind of thinks, you know, well, that was true here on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was powerful then, but I'm not so sure He's powerful now. I mean, this is Peter we're talking about. Peter's like an all-star, right? I'm not like Peter. Let's just remember for a second where Peter was one month before. Remember, we're 50 days past Passover now. 50 days ago, Peter was denying his Savior. He was running for his life, and he was hiding. He was terrified. He was scared. He was getting called out by young girls and lying about his knowledge of who Jesus was. And yet on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes, Peter stands up and powerfully proclaims the truth. Now this man who was hiding from little girls who were accusing him is standing in front of crowds of thousands and proclaiming God's truth. He says, look, we're not drunk. That's not what it is. There's a power in us that's different. And I would say to you and to me this morning that there is a power in you and available to you as a follower of Jesus Christ that's different, that changes things. When you tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, He will do things that is powerful through you. And guess what? You're going to seem crazy to some people in our world. Because here's some of the things that the Holy Spirit does. He gives us power over sin. In those sins that you and I struggle with, that He gives us power to overcome those things. The Bible says that we do not have to be captivated to sin any longer because God sets us free that when we walk in the Spirit, that we will deny our sinful desires. That to walk with the Spirit is to deny the flesh, the acts of the flesh, those things we naturally crave and pursue. Because you can have power over sin because of the Holy Spirit. You can have power to speak God's truth. There may be some of you today that would kind of go, you know what, I, I am not good at sharing verbally my relationship with Jesus to other people. The Holy Spirit can empower you to do that. Jesus had told His disciples, listen, you're going to get thrown in front of kings and rulers and authorities. Don't worry what to say. You're not trained or equipped, but the Spirit of God will fill you and He will speak through you. So don't fear. 
being in those public settings where you're asked to share your faith in Jesus. The Spirit of God in that time will remind you what to say and will tell you what to say, and you'll know how to present that. And you might not do it eloquently or greatly. You might feel bad about it, but God's Spirit will use your words to plant His seed in the heart of other people. And it's His responsibility to bring growth from that seed. So we see that there's power there. There's power to follow God's will. So many times we think, man, I can't do what God wants me to do because I don't know how to follow His will. And the Holy Spirit is implanted in us to help guide us to follow the will of God. That's one of His roles. He helps us follow and know God's will. He interprets Scripture. He helps us understand. The Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, we have power to hope. I mean, that seems crazy to a lot of people in our world. Why do you have hope when the stock market crashes? Why do you have hope? When your house burns down, why do you have hope? When somebody you love dies unexpectedly, why do you have hope? When you're going through a miserable time in your life and yet you live with anticipation and hope and joy and people see that and go, it's crazy. Why can you have hope? Because the Spirit of God is powerful in you to bring hope. That He gives us hope when we should be hopeless. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives us power to use gifts to serve His church. That every one of us has been given a gift that the Spirit of God gives to us as a way to serve His church. And that as we all use our gifts and our abilities from Him, that we make the church a place that reflects the kingdom of God. Because He's powerful to work in us. And so we see all of these things unfold and we see that some people in our world will go, that's, that's just crazy. How can you do that? That seems crazy to us. That's what happens when we live in tune with the Holy Spirit. We might seem crazy, but when we act in the power of the Spirit, we can rest. We, uh, we seem crazy to the rest of the world, but the evidence of His power is undeniable. I mean, it is undeniable in this moment when Peter stands in front of thousands of people and starts proclaiming the gospel. This seems crazy, but his life and what he's talking about and what I've seen of him, it's undeniable. How can you refute a changed life? How can you refute that? It is undeniable when people see your life where you were and where you are now as you follow in the Spirit and in His footsteps. They might think you're crazy, but they can't deny the changes that they've seen. They might think you're crazy, but they can't deny the fact that God's done a work in your life. So as you walk with the Spirit, you can change things in your culture, in your workplace, at your school, in your home. Let it be evident that the Spirit of God is working in you so that people see you and go, wait a minute, what? you used to party with us all the time. Why don't you party with us anymore? That seems crazy that you would stop doing that. But I see an undeniable evidence of God at work in your life. And I can't refute that. And my hope would be that over time, as people watch your life and inspect what you're doing and see the power of the Holy Spirit in you, that they would be drawn to know what that's about and that you would be vocal enough to tell them about God's work that can change their life as well, that He is powerfully working for them. So we see all of these things happening. And we know that the church is born in this grand fashion. Look how the the crowd responds in verse 37. We'll skip ahead. Uh, we're not going to take the time to read all of Peter's message. Peter preaches on this day a message of reconciliation to God. He confronts them very heavily about their involvement in crucifying Jesus and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And in verse 37, after he confronts the crowd, uh, the people hear this and they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and all the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so we see this, and it's the same thing that Jesus had talked about. The next thing we see is that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. In verse 41, 3,000 people responded to the gospel the first time that it was proclaimed with Jesus at the center. It says, you repent and you be baptized, and you can experience what we're experiencing, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come on you, and He will change your life. And 3,000 people respond to the message. Isn't that incredible? And so we see that, and that looks exactly like what we said in the first week of this series when Jesus taught about the parable of the mustard seed. Do you remember that? He talked about the parable of the mustard seed. He said, even though it's the smallest of all seeds, when it's planted in the ground, it shoots up rapidly and it becomes this big thing that's shady and the birds can land on it. And it becomes quickly something that's, that's powerful. This is what takes place with the church, just as Jesus predicted, that the birth of the church powerfully, strongly, quickly rises up. It goes from 120 people to 3,000 in one day. I mean, goodness, can you imagine what would happen if we walked in here next Sunday and not 120 of us, but 3,000 people showed up? What are we going to do? Right? And the apostles are seeing this, and 3,000 people respond to the gospel. But here's what I think is important for us to understand, and the next blank on your outline is this. That the church doesn't rise because the disciples are all-stars. The church rises because the Spirit is powerful. The church doesn't become this massive conglomeration of new souls because the disciples rock. Right? I mean, nobody's looking at Peter and going, dude, that, you are so incredible. That was awesome. That was the best message anybody has ever preached in the history of time. Look at what you did. The church doesn't rise to 3,000 because the disciples are all-stars. The church rises because the Spirit of God is powerful. I can remember back, uh, I, I love basketball. I uh, grew up playing basketball, watching basketball. I love basketball. In 1992, the United States in 1988 had uh, placed third in basketball. I think, if I remember correctly, it was the first time we had not won the gold medal in basketball. Because basketball is our game, right? Invented in America. It's American-born, American-bred. We play it the best. We're the coolest. We're awesome at basketball, right? And so it's our sport. We went to the 98 Olympic Games, 88 Olympic Games, and we bought third. So what was the response? We need to send all-stars to the Olympics so we get that gold back. And in 1992, the dream team was born. Do you remember this? Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Patrick Ewing, everybody down to Christian Leitner. Poor Christian. And so you've got all these guys that are on this team. And it was given, before the Olympics ever started, we were going to win the gold. Why? Because we had the all-stars. We had the best of the best. Nobody in the world was going to be better than us. The guys on the other team were asking our players to sign autographs for them before they played. Can I take your picture and get an autograph? Like literally, dudes sitting on the bench would give their teammates cameras and go, if I'm guarding him close to the bench, get a portrait of us while I'm guarding Michael Jordan. Like that's how it went down. It was crazy. Why were we going to win? Because we had the best. We had the all-stars. That's not how it works in the church. The church doesn't rise because we have an incredible staff. I mean, Matt's awesome and everything, but the church doesn't grow because Matt's incredible. The church doesn't rise because we have the coolest elders in town. That's just not why the church here grows. The church here doesn't grow because we have a better building than everybody else. Heck, our, our boiler doesn't even work. So that's not what brings growth. Why do we grow? Why are people drawn? What is the growth of the church? 
local and universal. It's the power of the Spirit. It's not the all-stars that are on God's team. God uses people for His glory, but the power of the Spirit is what changes the world. And lest any of us think that this is all happening because somebody's so cool or great or talented, that's not what takes place. Jesus, look at who Jesus chose to be on His team when He picked disciples. Did He choose rich people, cultural movers? Did He pick people who were eloquent speakers and poets? No. Who did He pick? He picked fishermen, tax collectors that were hated in their culture. He picked the despised. He picked the rejected. He said, these are going to be my guys. They're not all-stars. But through the power of the Spirit, they're going to change the game. Because the Spirit's powerful. Not because they're so great. It's not about all-stars. So how can God continue to change the world through us today? I mean, that's the question we need to ask. God is still in the power, in the business of changing people's lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does He do that through us? The Holy Spirit was the power source, power source for the disciples at Pentecost, and He is the power source for us now. And so here's the next thing on your outline. Here's what happens when we live tapped into the Spirit, the source of power for the Christian life that the Holy Spirit offers us. Acting within the power of the Spirit unites believers, and it draws unbelievers to Jesus. When we act in the power of the Spirit, it unites believers, and it draws unbelievers to Jesus. Here's the last Last portion, look at verse 42, Acts chapter 2. After this great number of people, 3,000 people had become believers in Jesus, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. See, there's this, this unity, this unifying of believers. That as they do this, that the believers are being unified. They're growing in their faith. They're growing in their love for one another. They're giving of themselves to one another. There's unification that's taking place. But look at the next verse. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That there is not just unity among believers, but there is drawing of unbelievers to Jesus. That as the world around watched them live out their faith in Jesus, it drew unbelievers to Him. And every day, God was adding to their numbers those who were being saved. Every day. And that power is still available to us. It would be wrong for us to think that God can't do the same thing here. It would be wrong for us not to be on our hands and knees crying out to God for people's lives to be changed. That as He brings us together and as we are unified in our love for one another and in our church as we grow, that God would be using people in our church to go out and share the gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and that every day we can be experiencing lives being changed. But do we expect it? Do we live that out? Or is the church now just something that we've decided this is something we attend? This is what we do just to come and check off our list for the week of the other things I've done. And now I'm going to go home and watch the race, watch football, chill out, take a nap, eat good good food. Or do we expect that as we've grown and been unified together, and encouraged one another in our faith that we'll go out and we'll live out these things and we'll draw unbelievers into the family of God. That's what He's called us to. And so here's what we see if, 
if you're, again, taking notes, here's the last blank on your outline. As a way to kind of summarize this passage, their good deeds led to goodwill among the people, which allowed an openness to the good news. And that's a quote from a guy named Jay Johnson. He's a pastor in California. But Jay says that their good deeds, the things that they did, the way that they lived their life as they sold their possessions for one another, as they met together, as they followed the teaching of the apostles, as they broke bread and fellowshiped their good deeds, the way that they lived out their life, that led to goodwill among the people. And as your life is exposed in our culture, in our community, does it lead to goodwill among people? It should. The things that we do as we're focused on our world, that it should lead to good deeds to be done by us for other people. And that brings a goodwill from people to listen to us and to receive the message of hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And as a result, it allowed an openness to the good news. Now here's the the deal. We have to be careful about. And we have to be careful not to do good deeds for people and for them to be grateful for it and be open to hearing the good news and then us go, all right, just wanted to mow your yard today. See you later. And never share with them the hope that we have in Jesus. Your good deeds have to lead to goodwill that provides an openness to share the good news. If you do good deeds and you leave the good news out, you have punished people. And I've been guilty of that. And perhaps you've been guilty of that. But we must make the gospel a part of it. And I would say this as we close up today. We don't have to have a Pentecost type experience to change the world. I mean, yeah, 3,000 people became believers in, in Jesus that day and were added to the church. And they supported one another. They remained devoted to the things of God. The Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And that's what the church is to be about. But we don't have to have a Pentecost type experience. Because there was one Pentecost where 3,000 people came, but then every day God was adding to their numbers little by little by little by little by little. Sometimes in great quantities, but mostly just incremental growth. And that's our goal and our hope here at at Grace Fellowship. We say that our objective is to, to reach the unchurched by releasing people, by releasing us into our community who love God passionately and other people irresistibly. And if we do that, then we will see God change the world. So as, as we said last week, do good deeds. But if you don't proclaim the good news of salvation when the opportunity is given, you miss the, the, you miss the point. And it doesn't change anything for anybody. And so as we close up this morning, here's what I would say to close. There are two groups to, to speak to very quickly. For those of you who are not believers in Jesus, I would want you to know this morning that Peter's invitation is open to you right now. That when Peter proclaimed this message at Pentecost and people said, brothers, what do we have to do to be saved? And he said, you repent, you believe in Jesus, and you be baptized. You surrender your life to him. That's what it takes. And that same invitation is open to you today. We're thankful that you're here. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we're glad you've come today. But if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart and you just say, you know what? I don't know him, but I want to. You follow Peter's model. You repent of your sins. You ask Jesus to forgive you. You invite him to come in and rule your life. Be baptized. And live under his authority. The second group of people this morning is this. That for us of us who are believers in Christ, I would ask, have you tapped into the power that's available to you through the Holy Spirit for victory in this life? Are you living defeated? 
Or are you living with his power at work in you? Because he wants to do something in your life that's radically different than what you're experiencing right now. If you're not living in his power and his victory, he wants to bring that to you. And so you ask him for that. Tap into his power. The Holy Spirit is no less powerful today than he was on the day of Pentecost. He's the same. His power is the same. He is available. And so I would encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're saying, I'm living in defeat, I don't feel that joy, I don't feel that hope, would you invite Christ's Spirit to just radically infuse itself in you and follow Him? That would be my challenge today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love you so much and I'm thankful, God, for your Spirit and your power. Thankful, Jesus, that we can have victory in this life. God, I pray right now for those who may be in this room that are outside of a relationship with you. God, I pray that they would feel the draw of your Spirit's power tugging on their hearts. It may be very well right now that their hearts are just racing in their chest. And if that's the case, God, I pray that they would surrender to you. Repent of their sins and ask you to change their life, follow you in baptism, and then to live surrender to you. God, for those of us who are here today and we're not experiencing the power and the victory that's available to us through Christ and through your Spirit, I pray that you would change that for us today. That we would seek through Scripture what it means to live life under the authority of the Holy Spirit so that we could be made different and made new in you. Lord, I love you so much, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together as we sing?